Uh, if you want a Bible, put your hand up and uh, they'll come around. Um, I haven't got any sort of bells and whistles this morning in the shape of PowerPoint uh, because we're focused around the communion table. And really, there's one message uh, that's uh, the theme that's going through the whole uh, service, and it's about knowing Jesus. Not just about him, uh, not just uh, what's been written, uh, but actually knowing him in our hearts. And so I really wanted to take any distraction away. And then as we come to communion, we maybe some for the first time. So I'm going to read from Philippians uh, chapter 3. It's on page 1180. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is of no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So as I've said, the purpose uh, this morning, just an encouragement. Uh, first of all, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? If not, you can, you can start to get to know him today and we'll talk to you about that. But for the rest of us, um, we want to know more. Do we want to know more? And of course, the answer, uh, I would imagine, is yes. Um, do we want to know him more sharing in his sufferings? We sing it quite easily and we can read it quite easily, but really, do we really want to do that? Do we really want to lay our lives down? Do we really want to let go of all that's gone and really get to know him? My early days um, as a Christian, my, uh, my knowledge was in the head. It hadn't got to the heart. And I remember thinking, it's all true. I've got it, it's true, and I've accepted it. Uh, but it needed to travel from here to here. I had to go to the heart. And once I realised that could happen, once I realised that it wasn't just for everybody else, that when we ask Jesus into our hearts, he really does come and he starts to change us. Once I realised that, I just simply had to surrender. It's not a word that none, probably any of us like using. Um, it's kind of, it feels defeatist, but it's not. It's I surrendered my life. I chose to surrender my life to God, to Jesus, and being open to the Holy Spirit. And then... Then I began to know him. And that journey continues. There are times when it feels a bit dry, and there are times when it, it feels great. But I must get to know him more. 
And purpose of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he's writing it from a Roman prison, so he says he's greatly encouraged by their partnership in the faith and everything else. He wrote it to the church in Philippi around AD 61. It was to thank them. They'd sent him a gift, uh, but also to encourage them in their walk and faith in Christ, particularly as they were suffering. They were suffering. Um, so I used to work on the floor of the stock market uh, back when there was a floor of the stock exchange, and uh, I was uh, a jobber. Uh, they call them market makers now, but I was a jobber, stock jobber. And what that meant was, those remember, for some of you that are old enough, you'll remember the hexagonal pitches on the floor of the stock exchange. I had, I had a part of one of them. And um, there's a technical term uh, when you... And then those days, no screens or anything. Everything was word of mouth. And if you, if I, as a job, if I sold a broker shares, it meant that I must be the cheapest in the market. That's the only way I would know. There was nothing to check. Uh, we used to send our blue buttons out. We were trainee dealers to go and buy 20 copies of the Evening Standard, the first edition, because they would print the share prices. And we'd make sure we were close to them. That's our antiquated. This is only, uh, you know, before 1986. Uh, 86 when, when Big Bang happened. Anyway, sometimes you knew you were very wrong on your price. Um, so a quick lesson in market making or jobbing. Um, you could have a stock, and my one, I was Rain Industries, I was R to W's, engineers, UK engineers, Rain Industries to Wee Way Watson. And the last one we'll pick on, Wee Way Watson. Let's say I'm, I make a price 28 to 30. It means if you're a seller, I'll buy them from you at 28, and if you're a buyer, I'll sell them to you at 30. Every now and again, a thing would happen where it was called a backwardation. Anyone know what a backwardation means? Oh, you, oh, Harry, of course you would, wouldn't you, Harry? <laughs> of course you would. So you're going to enjoy this story. So a backwardation is, say I'm making 28 to 30, right? And you're, you're, you're a broker. It means you can buy them from me at 30. But another jobber, who I, I don't know, is making 31 to 33. In theory, you could buy them from me at 30, walk over the other side of the exchange, and sell them to the other one at 31. Except it was against the rules. Now, you may laugh and think silly people don't follow the rules, but in those days, they did, and the broker wasn't allowed to do it. He couldn't deal on what we called a back, on a backwardation. But what had happened is the other jobber, in this case, I worked for a company called Biscuit Bishop. This case was a jobber called Pinchin Denny, and I couldn't see them from my pitch, but their member dealer, member dealers were quite, this the very top guys. I was in the middle. I was a yellow badge. I was what they called an authorised dealer. And he'd left our firm a little while ago, which, which was really bad because we didn't like him for that. But he was senior to me. He was a member of the stock exchange, and that meant he was to be held in high regard. He came over, and my, my senior dealer was off the pitch, and he said, oh, we're making a backwardation, Ian, and so therefore um, I will bid you 31. You're offering it to the market at 30. I'll bid you 31 for your stock. And I don't have to deal with the jobber. I have to deal with the brokers once I've made a price. I said, no, thank you, because actually I was what they call short of stock. That meant I've sold shares I haven't got, and I've got to buy them back, and I didn't realise I was the cheapest in the market, so I don't want to sell them. He said, but you're offering them to the market at 30. I said, well, I'm not giving them to you at 31. So you can, off you go. And he stormed off with a huff, really annoyed, because the junior dealer has basically called out the member dealer. And he said some really rude things about me. And then my hero of our firm, of Bisgood Bishop, they used to call him Mr. USM, Unlisted Securities Market, which is now the AIM market, the alternative investment market, Brian Winterflood, he was my senior partner. And I told him, I said, yeah, this guy... He was really rude to me, so well, I'm not having that. And he walked over to him, and in, in front of a lot of people, tore him off a strip. And he said, don't you speak to one of my dealers like that. And I'm sure there's a little bit of it that the guy had left our firm as well. So I was pumped up, because I'm feeling I belong. I'm like one of the boys. And, and Brian even knows my name, which is incredible. Um, he knew me. He backed me. Brilliant. And I was smiling for the rest of the day until 3.30 when the bell rang. 
And that was when the stock market, the floor ended. And they used to say, you're going upstairs now. And that just meant into the dealing room. You had to do EBs, early bargains. They weren't bargains for the next day. That's a detail that adds nothing to this story. I'm just on a bit of a flow, you see. And then Brian Winterflood calls me in the office. And I think, oh, we're best buddies. It's great. He backed me up. It's brilliant. And he absolutely ripped into me. Because he said, Ian, you were right, but don't ever speak to a member dealer like that again. They deserve your respect. He said, you're better than that. And as a Christian, I know that God is for me. I know that God is for me, but it doesn't mean he leaves me just to get on with things with no direction. And and it doesn't mean that for you either. And I'm learning all the time, same as you are. And sometimes that means uh, he'll show me effectively um, something that's going on that I need to change. He's for me. He loves me. But he's calling me in that metaphorical room saying, come on in, you're better than that. That wasn't the right way to be or to say or behave. And to be able to follow him, I must know him. I can't, it's not enough just to know about him, because then it's just a rule book. I've got to know him, and that's the focus of this morning. The background to this passage that we're reading, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul talks about the church in Philippi, that they're in partnership in the gospel. He thanks them. He's thanking them from prison, as I've mentioned already. And he's really grateful that the gospel isn't quashed just because Paul's in prison. In fact, the church in Philippi is flourishing. Any cyclists here? One, two, two, three, four. <laughs> so Tour de France is on. Have you seen this? It's on the news. And there's been a bit of a dilemma because Chris Froome is the team leader, but Grant Thomas, who's Welsh, again, nothing to do with the story. I thought I'd mention it. Um, uh, got in front, and there's, there's a quandary. Who's going to lead the team? And finally, Chris Froome says he's in a better position. Let's keep Grant at the front because the most important thing is the team wins. And they've called themselves Team Sky. They're a team. They're in partnership. Some of them would have to suffer more than the others because they lead them up the mountains. They go in front, they make the effort, and the others follow them. But they're a team. And Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5, that we're partners in the gospel. We need to remember that. Sometimes some of us are suffering. Sometimes some of us are ill. Sometimes some of us are flourishing. And we can say, along with Paul, rejoice. Because we're a partnership. We're part of the same team. In verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul says he's confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on till completion. Sometimes it's easy to lose our way a bit, maybe to doubt, but God will carry you through. Whatever you're going through right now, God will get you through. Whatever it is, he's got you to this point. He will get you through because he's with you. He's with you. He's your shepherd. And then there's a challenge in verse 27 of chapter 1 when Paul says, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Anyone ever do that 100% of the time? Not me. Not me. I know my own failings, and I know that I'm a work in progress. But it's a good, it's a challenging passage, isn't it? Whatever I do, do it in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, which I shared right at the beginning of the service, he shares the humility of Christ, the joy of serving, the joy in suffering. We don't often have a theology of suffering. Some of us are suffering. But there's a joy in suffering for Christ. That we're to follow the example of Christ. He says, to shine like stars in the universe. This is Paul the Apostle. He knew his Old Testament. He would have known exactly what he was saying. Echoing Genesis 26 verse 4, when Abraham is in communion with God. And God says to him, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then in the New Testament, we know from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, let your light shine before men. 
Over 2 billion Christians in the world, um, shining like stars, often in a dark world. We might not have seen uh, the great event, which apparently was going to be the end of the world, but since we're all here, uh, it clearly wasn't on Friday. Anyone see the moon thing? A bit cloudy, wasn't it? Oh, four weeks of sun, and then the one day we want it. And I blame Gary, actually, because he went on holiday yesterday, and I knew the weather would change uh, for him and his holiday. So pray for Gary, poor Gary. Um, we didn't see it, but if you think about the stars in the sky, when I used to go to Soul Survivor and there was no, there was no uh, light interference, you'd look up and you're just blown away. Uh, but the majority of the sky is blank. But the, the stars shine, and as Christians we shine. And God said to Abraham, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Jesus said, let your light shine before men. Two billion Christians, over two billion in the world now. And then we come to our chapter, chapter 3. God works through us in all these things, but only if your belief is the correct one. It's only if your faith is not in yourself. It's got to be in Christ. It can't be just known about him. It's got to be knowing him as well. Your faith can't be in the world because the world is ever-changing, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worst. It can't be your achievements. They're in the past. You can, you can, be, you can be grateful for them and everything else, but you can't put your faith in them. You can't put your faith in your exams, especially if you're me, because I failed most of them. But, but eventually they come and go, and your faith still needs to be in Jesus. I can't put my faith in my career. That could, well, hopefully I can at the moment, but in the past, um, it taught myself out of a job and just had my appraisal. Um, uh, in your career, it cu- comes and goes. I mean, I remember leaving school. I was about to go in the army. My dad said, get into insurance or banking. You'll have a job for life. They were the two worst industries I could have picked. So I didn't. I went into broking, and, uh, and, and that was fine. But we can't trust in our careers. We can't trust or put our faith in our health. We're in decaying bodies. Things go wrong. I'm 50 now. You know, it used to be, I used to play football twice at the weekend. I used to go boxing three times a week and just no problem. Now, I play 18 holes of golf. I've got an electric trolley that's remote control. I don't have to lift anything. And Andrew will tell you that when I come in, I'm like, oh, you know, a bit hilly over Chelmsford. You know, things decay. <laughs> it is hilly over Chelmsford. I'll bring pictures. I'll bring pictures next time. I'm puffed out. Things change. The body decays. So we can't put our faith necessarily in our health. But if we put our faith in Christ and what he's done for us, then we'll not be shaken. We'll know that it will be okay in the end. Then we can stand firm. Back to another city illustration. I was quite an insecure person, really. I still am in some ways. But I remember uh, being at a firm where our research was 10th and the, the bit I was, was going to be in charge of was 13th, sales trading. And uh, my job was to get it in line with 10th because you should be at least where your research votes are. And after two years, we actually got to fourth. And you would think that I'd be self-congratulated, but I wasn't. It was just not good enough. I put immense pressure on myself because I felt that's how I was measured. Why were the others better? I take clients out, and they said to you, say to me, you're obsessed. You know, why is this guy better? Because three American firms were before me, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and Merrill Lynch. You can see I've let this go. This is, this is <laughs> back in 1999. It still gets me. But they had better analysts than us anyway. So we're out punching. Our research is at 10th and our sales trading is at 4th. So uh, I was doing all right. But I was obsessed. You know, I had to be the best. Had to, uh, had to be better than all the others. It's all born out of insecurity. My faith was in something other than Christ. I needed to impress. Now, as a Christian, I have to say, as I've just written in the church magazine, I work for an audience of one. 
You know, really, I'm here to please him and know him. And the same happened for me. I'd like to say when I became a Christian, I had all that sorted out. Well, I didn't. When I first started coming to church, well, what must I give to be better than everybody else? What must I achieve to prove myself to everybody else? What must I do? What makes me a better Christian? I didn't get it that God starts with me where I am. And he doesn't leave me there. I need to be able to trust him, to have faith in him and know him. And then he changed me. I can't change myself to make God love me more. I know him, he loves me, he wants to change me and he'll help me change. My faith and your faith can only be found in one person who was and is God and that's Jesus Christ. That's where our faith must lie. And this is what Paul concerns himself with the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. As we've got our faith in him, we're passionate, we're spirit-filled, we can rejoice. If if we're putting our faith in other things, they may let us down and we've walked away from from Christ at the centre of our lives and we're not aware of his guidance, then we're going to start worrying about everything. I need to know him. I need to know his presence and so do you. And verse 2, Paul says, because he's now talking about the legalism, we're going to whisk through this. Uh, he's talking about the legalism. He says, watch out for those dogs. He calls them dogs. This is what he was. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. He's really denouncing everything he had lived for up to that point. There were Jewish believers there, Judaizers as they called them, who thought they were so righteous, as Paul did. He said, I, if you want to talk about righteousness, I'm, I'm the main man. They thought they're so righteous, which means you know, they're right with God. They are the people of God. They've done all the legalistic things they had to do there with God. They had immense spiritual pride and arrogance. Not the humility that we found in Philippians chapter 2, talking about Christ who humbled himself on a cross, obedient even to death on a cross, and that we must become like him. They didn't realise that all their efforts to keep the law had been found wanting, and actually what they needed was Christ. They needed to know Christ. They were looking at the past. They were looking behind them. They thought that what they'd already done, in their case, circumcision, which is the cutting, this is the mutilating of the flesh that Paul now calls it, made them the true believers. They weren't looking at the now. They weren't looking at what Christ had done. They weren't looking at the free gift he offers to know him, his grace. Grace is you get everything you don't deserve. Not looking at his mercy, not getting everything you do deserve. The discussion, Paul's still talking about this, 11 years after, if you read Acts 15, you get the whole story of the Council of Jerusalem. There were some there saying that you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas came into disagreement with them. And it says in verse 9 of chapter 15 in Acts, he made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. He's still preaching it 11 years later, or writing about it to the church in Philippi. It's about the heart. It's about knowing Jesus. Who are the Judaizers today? I think they're the people who say, you must behave before you come to church. You must be perfect before you come to church. It's about you and what you can do. And if you do that, if you come in the doors, then we might let you feel like you belong. But before you belong, you've got to behave. You've got to do everything on your own strength. You've got to be perfect. And then if you behave and we let you belong, then you might end up with belief. And then it all becomes apparent. I was stuck in that rut when I first became a Christian. I really was. I thought it was just a rule book. I felt a failure because I couldn't keep them. And and I didn't feel like I belonged. Eventually, my belief went from the head to the heart. And I realised God changed us from the inside out. 
and, and we'll never be perfect until we meet him again. But instead, what Paul is saying is, is about believe first. Believe in Christ first. You know, the Bible says so many times in it, repent, believe, be baptised, you'll be filled with the Spirit. Repent means to change your mind. Choose God. Choose Christ. Know him. Believe in what he's done on the cross. Get baptised to, to, as an outward demonstration. Baptism is the new birth. It's not the, it's not the deathbed in a sense of the end of your life here. It's the end of your life as you knew it, but it's a birth. It's a new birth. In, in John 3, when, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a man must be born of water and of the Spirit. He said, how can a man go back into his mother's womb? He didn't understand it, Nicodemus. Yet he was a real religious leader. He knew his Bible. Jesus said, no, no, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. You must be, but it's a beginning. It's not the end. It's not get everything right in your life. This is the, this is the Judaizer uh, uh, gospel. Get everything right, be perfect, and then we might baptise you. And if we baptise you, we might let you become a church uh, member. And then you might feel like you belong. What we're saying is believe Get baptised, be filled with the Spirit, and he'll start to change you as you cooperate. So then what we want to do, really, is is be a church where people can come, they can feel like they belong. You know, all the groups that we do on the fringe are really important. All the different people that come in, all those families, Holiday Bible Club or the toddlers groups or the babies group, whatever groups they are, even if they don't come to church, when they're talking to their friends... They often say, our church, because they've got a connection. We want, to, we want them gradually to feel like they belong. We want people to, to belong. And then as they belong, they might then start to believe. And then they'll behave. But if we start with behaviour, then we're just nothing but self-righteous Christians, which is, I think, the worst slur. Billy Graham. Who knew Billy Graham? Oh, come on. Honestly, engage. Who knew Billy? Who not personally? Who's heard? Let's just change it. Who's heard of Billy Graham? Who went to a Billy Graham crusade? Look at that. Amazing. Thank God for that man. Who remembers a song that was always sung? Just as I am. Who said that? Just as I am. Just as I am, without one plea that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Come just as you are. It's come to know Christ, just as you are. He won't leave you like that, but we must know him. And then we must put our faith in him, and then just see what God does. Uh, chapter 3, verses 3 to 6, Paul compares the two. He's using his own background. It looks like he's bigging himself up a little bit, but he's not really. He's just setting himself up for a fall. Verse 3, um, even though we are the circumcision, so he's part of that circumcision group. They're all proud, and they're, we're the proper people, and the Gentiles, that's us, can't come in. It's not for them. And if they do, like they said 11 years earlier at Council of Jerusalem, uh, tried to argue, if they do, we'll circumcise them as well. Um, but that was all put to bed. But Paul's saying here, look, we're the circumcision, yet I put no confidence in the flesh. He's not relying on his past. He said, but if you want to argue about it, I'll compare myself with you. Verse 5, he says, well, I was circumcised on the eighth day, as it says to do in the Old Testament. Uh, And equally in verse 5, he said, well, look, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. They were like the, they, they were a good tribe, Benjamin. They were held in high regard. 
The first ever king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't do too well in the end, Saul. And, then, and, and also uh, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah were the only ones that returned from exile to Israel. So he had good genes. He said, if you want to compare yourself to me, um, I was circumcised. I've got great connections. My family connections are fantastic. You're not, you're not going to beat them. And then he says in verse 5, he said, also, I was a Pharisee. You see, a Pharisee, they kept the law, or tried to, religiously, for want of a better word, no pun intended, but, but really the letter of the law. But they added additional rules to their life to make them a little bit superior to everybody else. So he said, I've got all these things. If you want to compare it, you can compare it, but I will beat you hands down. But he still hadn't got the message because he said, and I was a persecutor of the church. So he knew everything that had gone on, but he'd missed Christ. And of course, we can know the Bible like the back of our hands. We can know, read all the Christian books, we can go to Christian conferences, but we must know Christ, not just about him. He had all the credentials, Paul did, but he didn't know him. So it sounds like he's boasting, it sounds like he's putting himself up there, the super believer, but his faith was all wrong. It was in himself, his heritage, his family connection. But then, of course, we know when he was still called Saul that he had an encounter with Christ, his eyes were opened, He's not boasting here. He's showing how useless all those things were. You can't rely on your family connections. You can't rely on your lifestyle. You can't rely on your careers. You can't rely on your scholarship. You must know Christ. It's not enough to say history is on my side and we're in a Christian country. No, we're not. We're not. The majority, by far, people in this country are not Christians. 72% say they are, but about 7% go to church. And, and who knows, you know, we, we, no one knows who's the heart, uh, what's in the heart of a believer. We've got to move out of the pastoral mode, looking after only the people in the church, and we have to make sure we're in mission mode, going outside as well. It's not enough to say, my parents came to church and bought me. It's not enough to say, look at all the things I do for God. Although they will be rewarded, that does not save you. You know, the reason for Alpha, you never heard of Alpha? Oh, it's so engaging this morning. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Who's not heard of Alpha? That's better. Right, you've all heard of Alpha. Good. The reason Alpha was set up is because all the people, well, not all of them, probably, a lot of them, um, at Holy Trinity Brompton, that was written for their people in the church to remind them of what they actually came to church for because they didn't know what they believed in. And, of course, God uses it as this great evangelistic tool. We need to know. We need to know Christ. And Paul now puts all those things in their place. He's saying they mean nothing to me now. The family, the credentials, the scholarship, the physical, the circumcision, the air of authority, and especially the wrong faith, which was at best holding the coats as Christians were being killed. He's saying, I'm putting all that behind me. And after what seems like boasting, he fires his arrow into the heart of what is now a false gospel of heritage, of works, of education and standing, that you must be perfect to call yourself a Christian. There's a paradigm shift and it changes everything. And I remember that for me. I remember knowing and really reading loads of books about, about Jesus, about Christ, about Christianity. But I remember as a point where I thought, if all of this is true, then I'm in trouble. And of course, if it is true, which it is, and you're sitting here and you're not a believer, you're in trouble. But of course, God sends his son to rescue us. And I remember being at a point where I said, if this is true, I need Christ in my life. But I'm doing this, I'm not going to list all my sins, okay, because we need to leave by 11.30, there's a lot of them. But I'm thinking about the past now. I was doing loads wrong. 
Loads of, I'm not perfect now, but I was, I was doing loads of different ways. And I thought, I, I need Christ in my life, but I'm not perfect. And then when, I find, when it finally hit me, the paradigm shift is, you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to just know him and let him work in your life. And then it all started to follow. And then you echo with Paul in verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. He demonstrated that if someone wanted to take him on with their credentials, as if they could earn their way into heaven, if they wanted to say, look, I'm the best Jew, he could say, no, you're not, I am. He still beat them hands down. His credentials were unbeatable. But he's saying in verse 8, it means nothing. All of that means nothing in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. It's shifted. His whole mindset has shifted. And now it's about knowing Christ. He's had this encounter. In the old days, I'd read my Bible. As I said, I'd read the books. I learned loads about him. But you can't just know the word of the Lord. You need to know the Lord of the word. And my devotional journey, yours will be very different, or maybe not. My devotional journey, I love coming to church. I love worshipping corporately. I like going to big events and all that sort of stuff. But my, my devotional journey has always been quite personal. And that, I love that time that I can get uh, just to be with Jesus. The awareness of his presence. Sometimes that slips. You can get caught up in the ministry side of it. That you, Am I just reading the Bible so I prepare a sermon? And I'm desperate not to slip into that. We need our own time. And we say that as a staff team as well. When I'm aware of his presence, then I can truly say on a day-by-day basis, and this is something he's been speaking to me for most of this year, that he is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He will get me wherever I need to go. And I have to trust in him. And some of you will be going through difficult things in life. Some of you won't be. Some of you will be going through some great things in life. And probably there's some of you somewhere in between. But whatever position you're in, whatever's going on in your life now, whether it's ill health, whether it's family issues, um, work issues, whatever it is, church issues, the Lord is your shepherd and he will see you through. He will see you through. He carries on. Verse 8, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He's now shifted from his works of legalism to saying it's all about knowing Christ. Verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own, so I haven't got to be perfect. But that what comes, sorry, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ comes from God and is by faith. Verse 10, it talks really about dying to our old self and becoming more like Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Just hold on to that for a second. We'll all agree to that, wouldn't we? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I mean, that's huge power, okay? We want that. Then it goes on, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's not quite so nice, is it? Because when you think how Christ suffered, but in a way, we do have to put the old self to death. Becoming like him in his death, in verse 11, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. It's about knowing Christ. Paul's main aims, I must know Christ. And I want to know him more. I want to know the power that God demonstrated in the resurrection. And I'm actually offering myself to share in his suffering. We know that all the creation is groaning until the, the end of days. And we know, as I've said already, uh, that our bodies uh, are decaying. We know things aren't great. So, but in some ways, we're sharing in his suffering. That wasn't the original plan. It's easy to sing, but harder to do. But we do need to suffer sometimes for the gospel. 
but we have a great inheritance. And going back to Billy Graham, I've seen I've mentioned him already, and you all knew him. Um, he did say, didn't he, that uh, don't worry too much about everything. I've read the end of the Bible. It all works out okay. <laughs> so we need to remember that and remember that verse 11 says we'll be with him forever. We'll be with him forever, whatever's going on. We don't have to fear death. Well, we don't have to. We're not saying we want it, you know, want it to happen anytime soon. We don't have to fear it. Uh, we will have ill health. We'll have trials and tribulations. Jesus warns us about them. He says they'll increase. That's part of sharing in his suffering. He was rebuked. He was uh, a crown of thorns on his head. He was spat out. He had to carry his cross. Um, and we're going to sing, or we did sing, sharing in his suffering. But we'll be with him forever. God, or Jesus, became like us. He did that to identify with us. Uh, he was tempted, the Bible says. And this is hard, isn't it, when you look at all the evil that goes on in the world. He was tempted in every way, so that he could identify with us. He was fully human, yet fully God. And he did that so he could know you, so he could identify with you, to change you. The Bible says Christ is in you. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. What a privilege that is. Now, uh, a lot of us have had children, and I remember uh, we had children. I say remember, because they're out all the time now, I don't know where they are, um, but they're about and about. But I've got this image, uh, you know when you get a playpen, you know, you go out and buy all this stuff, you've got the playpen, and there's this story of uh, a young child, and he's, he's done wrong, I'm going to say a he, because it's always the boys, it's always Johnny, isn't it? Someone called Johnny has done wrong, so we'll call him Mike just to let Johnny off the hook. He's done really a lot of bad stuff and he's been told off and his mum, his mum says, Daz, you've been a naughty boy, Mike, nearly forgot the name, um, and puts him in the playpen. And so he's abandoned and he's, got to, he's being punished. You know, he's in the playpen and he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't know where mum is and he's screaming. And because dad gets in, doesn't he? Because dads are the softest most of the time. I certainly was. And, uh, and see what's happened and everything else. Don't get him out of that playpen because he needs to learn a lesson. Uh, he's done wrong. And he says, okay, I won't get him out of the playpen. And so the wife goes back in the kitchen. The dad gets his legger and goes into the playpen. <laughs> and he plays with his son. And he teaches him maybe there's a better way of doing things that doesn't annoy your mother. He became like him. I had, a, I had a day uh, this past week, I went to a charity day, um, I had to go, it was a golf day and I had to play golf, took my day off, 27 holes, I'll tell you what, if, you, if you're tired at 50 after 18 holes, try 27, and it was Tuesday, that was the hot, one of the hot days, honestly, I want sympathy. There was a serious note uh, to the day, they were raising money for Little Haven's Hospice, and uh, at the end of the day, about 9 o'clock um, in the evening, they, after dinner, they had a, a speaker from Little Havens, a lovely lady, who spoke a little bit about what they do. Anyone who's there is going to die. Um, there's no happy endings, but they try and make it the happiest place for the children. As I learned about the work, I thought it was amazing. And they, they make, what they said, they make dreams come true. Uh, one, of, one of the girls was supposed to probably, you know, whatever, just, just a story. I'm not saying to believe in it or condemn it or even like it. But anyway, she was supposed to go to Harry Potter World and uh, she couldn't because she was so ill. And she was so upset because her cl the school were going, the class were going, and she was the only one not, not going. And, and they actually got Daniel Radcliffe to do a video link. And, uh, it, and apparently for about 10 or 15 minutes, got this girl and was talking to her, made her an honorary member of whatever is, uh, I haven't watched it, but whatever the uh, class is he's in, Dumbledore, or whatever it's called, I don't know. 
Um, and, um, oh, Griffin, what is that? I don't know, what's the, I don't know. Griffin, Gryffindor, Gryffindor, see? So, uh, and she, he makes her an honorary member and everything. And he says to her, he says to her, um, you know, all your friends are at Harry Potter World, but nobody has had Harry Potter ring them up on a video link and make it. And, you know, it just made the dream come true. But the story of what got me and brought me to tears was um, there was a young lad, um, and there was no happy ending. He was only eight, and um, he had a tumour. And so he had to get a haircut, because uh, they needed to operate on this tumour. Um, and the dad, was t- the dad was there telling the story. It was eight years ago. Um, and he was telling the story. He said he was a lovely lad. And, um, sorry. and so he said he had this tumour, and they had to cut his hair. And he said, he said Dad, they're not going to cut my hair. His biggest worry wasn't the tumour. He, he didn't want to have his hair cut. You know, typical boy. And um, he said, I'll only get it cut, Dad, if, I can shave, if they can shave my head, and, but I want a green Mohican. You know, he's eight years old, and the dad said, you know, my son was sick. He could have anything he wanted. I didn't care. So he has this, he, this is what they did. They shaved the head, and he has the green Mohican and everything else. And then, um, and then they do the operation. He's now got a bandage around his head, and he's got his green Mohican bit, and it's all shaven. After two weeks, the dad said, you know, I said, you've got to do school. You know, and, the, and the hospital have a school, and you need to go to school. And he thought, well, if I've got to go to school, I might as well go back to my old school. And so he said, I want to go back to my old school. And he said, okay. But now he's really worried because he's all different. And he's the only kid in the class, isn't he, with a bandage around his head, a shaved head, with a green Mohican. So his dad said, well, there's a school fate. This is true. This is what he said. He said, there's a school fate on Saturday. Why don't you go there and people will see it. And, you know, he's really, really worried. He said his best friend turned up at the house to go with him to the school fate. His best friend had shaved his head, uh, put a bandage around it, had a pink Mohican. When he went to school on the Monday, the whole class had shaved their heads, put a bandage around their head, and had Mohicans. They became like him so that he could fit in. God, we can learn from children, can't we? God became like us so that we could know him. He wants us to find our way back to him. And as we come to communion, I want you to remember, it's by faith you've been saved, not by works. You must know Christ. We live our lives out in gratitude because of it, but it's belief. It's belief and then walking towards Jesus. Believing, belonging, then behaving. To do that, we need to be led by the Spirit who changes you from within. Paul had to lay down a lot. He would have, it would have cost him family, friends, reputation, but the most important thing for him was knowing Christ. And so for you, go and spend time with him. There's so much business in the world, but spend time with him in his word. Sense the Holy Spirit. Sit in silence. When, when do you ever do that? It's, the Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. Be still. Hear his voice. Know him, not just about him. And live life in that light, just knowing Christ. Um, we're going to sing now before we come to communion. And this song was written uh, in regards to Philippians 3. So I'll ask the band to come back. And we're going to sing, All I once held dear, build my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. They mean nothing. It's all about knowing Jesus. And make it your prayer that you want to know more and more. And then, as is happening, Christians will change the world. So let's stand and sing, All I once held dear.